some of us come uh, to grips with in life, and uh, sometimes it's a little too early in life. And the hard reality is this, is that we can make decisions, and no matter what we think about on the front side of those decisions, those decisions often set us down a path that we never intended to go. And so uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta, and I unfortunately uh, had to learn this many times over uh, at a young age. But in between high school and college, we were around 17 or 18 year olds, our, what we set out to do as fun in downtown Atlanta turned out to be a bit of trouble for us one evening. And so we actually made a lot of excursions into Atlanta from, from uh, the suburbs. And one particular time, I have no idea where we got up with this idea, but the, the idea was this, is that, hey, why don't we go down and find the biggest, coolest fountains in Atlanta, and let's just go swim in them late at night. Let's just go find as many as we can. And we made several excursions of this. You can see me and my friends acting stupid. I think a bunch of girls came to watch us because we were so buff uh, and take pictures for us. Uh, but we, we usually had a lot, of, a lot of fun. Well, there was one particular time when this decision uh, to go took us further than we wanted to go. And we went down uh, towards the end of one of these trips in Atlanta, and we thought to ourselves, we really need to find, like, the best fountain we could ever swim in in Atlanta. And through a little research, one of my friends found out that there was this restaurant that was below ground level uh, in downtown Atlanta at a big office park. And, and it was a really nice, fancy restaurant, the kind where you wear suits to go to. And uh, you went down into the restaurant, and around all of the restaurant was a, kind of a fountain. I won't say a river, but it was like, you know, width of maybe three or four chairs around and had these little features in it. And it went all the way. It was a really nice, peaceful place to have dinner. We thought, this is it. This is the pinnacle. This is the greatest achievement we can make in fountain swimming. And so we were dressed just like you saw there and, uh, and hopped down. We had to actually, you had to remove a grate, climb down into it, and then you were free to roam. And so as everyone is enjoying their fine dining in their suits, we were playing in ours all around them. And uh, it was a blast. And this next picture will give you an insight. That's actually what we had to climb down and to get it. We're climbing out. You know, this is back when the cameras were like real cameras and not photo on your phone, so it's not that great of a picture. But all those smiles climbing back out were met on the street by the restaurant manager and the Atlanta City Police. Now, my friends thought it was a joke. I was terrified. Let me tell you why. Because there, my dad repeated some mantras to me growing up, and one of them he repeated to me, and this was on very often he said this, son, if you ever find yourself arrested, I will not bail you out. You will at least spend a night in jail. And that was repeated enough where it was burned into my conscience. And sure enough, when we came up and I saw those police and my friends started chuckling, I was terrified. I knew them. I knew their parents. They were getting them out of this one. But I knew I was probably about to spend the night in Fulton County Jail. And if you're from Atlanta, Fulton County Jail is infamous for a place that you do not want to spend the night in, all right? And, uh, and so we, we came to a place where we, our choices took us down a path where we didn't expect to end. And so we started off thinking that it was all fun, and our choices led us much further than we wanted to go. And so luckily, um, we, we begged and begged and begged and pleaded, hey, listen, we'll do, we'll do dishes all night in the kitchen. Now, that would be a sight, right? Four guys back there with their shirts off and soaking wet in swimsuit doing dishes. Uh, but after the pleading and after some scolding by the Atlanta, the Atlanta police, uh, the restaurant owner decided not to press charges against us and let us go that night. Needless to say, that was the last time we went fountain swimming. 
uh, but it definitely was a memorable one. And the story's a bit humorous and light, but the principle is a serious one. And, that, and the principle is this, that our choices really can take us further than we want to go and further than we intend to go. And interestingly enough, this is a pattern we see in Judges, the book of Judges, over and over and over again. So if you're just joining with us, we've been in a series in the book of Judges. And... Uh, and we've been, we're several chapters in, and there's a larger narrative t- taking place that we're seeing over and over again. And that's that God's people keep rebelling against God. They keep turning away from him to find their hope in him. And they're turning to the Canaanite gods, the cultural idols of the day, which is Baal and Ashtaroth. And they keep going back there and back there and back there to give them a sense of security and comfort. And the pattern we're seeing is they go back, but God keeps rescuing them. And he rescued them from, their, from the oppression in Egypt, and he follows them into the land, and they keep turning away from him, and he keeps rescuing them over and over again. And the rescue comes in surprising ways each and every time. And so that's the larger narrative that we see over and over and over again in the book of Judges. And he keeps coming after them. And so this is going to be the first of two sermons on the story of Gideon. It's a longer story, and really the longest in, as far as uh, in the book of Judges on one particular judge. And, and we're going to focus on this first one. The second one we're going to get in more to is leadership uh, and some of the things we see in it. But this first one, we're going to narrow in on that part of this larger narrative that is like this broken record where the Israeli, Israelites keep going after these Canaanite gods and kind of see where it take them. And so our bigger picture summary, what we're wanting to see this morning, it'll be up on the screen in your outline is this, is that sin always takes us further than we want to go, yet our patient God meets us there to rescue us. Let's pray. Father, um, we come in this morning, and we've got different people from different walks of life, but we all share this in common, is that we're constantly allured to go away from you and chase after other things. And Father, that's a road that always takes us to a place we never intended to go. And Father, you know our story. You know what we're dealing with this week. You know how we're coming in. You know the very things that we need to be encouraged and challenged by this morning. And we pray that what you would do, what we have no power to do, which is to make your word come alive to us. Over and over again, God, you meet the people of Israel and the places where they find themselves. And we pray that you would meet us, no matter where we're at in our journey today, that you would meet us here. Because you're a good, patient wise and loving God. It's your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to begin here with the destination of idolatry. And this passage in particular that we read this morning is unique in the judges' passages up to this point because it shares a few details that the other stories don't. And the details this one shares is more about how hard things really got for the Israelites. Most of the descriptions at this point just say the Israelites rebelled against God and they were oppressed by this particular enemy around them. This passage goes into more detail and it's for a purpose. It's for a reason because it's there to get our attention, to teach us something about where idolatry takes us. And the principle we see here, and it'll be on the screen, is this, is that sin, which in essence is being allured away from our hope in God, sin always takes us further than we want to go. We're promised life, and it never delivers. I get this image in my head uh, all week long of this, of this highway with no off-ramps, that it's a highway that takes us, that promise to take us to the destination of life. But ultimately, it takes, us, it, it takes us to a place where it takes life from us. But it's a highway with no off-ramps. And that's the very same thing we see happening here in this passage. Let's look at verse 1, particularly from the very beginning here. It says this, uh, The charge against the people of Israel was that they did evil 
in the sight of the Lord, meaning they turned to trust and find their hope in the Canaanite cultural gods, which was their ongoing struggle. That was the evil. That's what keeps coming up over and over and over again. And historically, we know that Baal and Asherah, the kind of the, the gods that they were prone to be drawn to worship, promised fertility of their animals, fertility of the people. And, and in essence, it, it promised life, right? I mean, if you're an agrarian society, the fertility of your people and the fertility of your animals in the fields is your economic prosperity. It is how you live. And it promised that for the people. That's what the Canaanites worshipped, and it promised that for Israel, and they kept going after it. And they, but they would do something a little particular. They would run after those cultural gods in addition to try to worship God as well. And maybe they were thinking, hey, listen, this works for the people around us. Why wouldn't it work for us? But let's look where it takes them. And ultimately, it took them to a place of poverty and famine. We see this in the language coming up in verses 3 and 4. It says, for whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come against them. And they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. And verse 5 goes on to say that they raided in such number it was like locusts in the land. And it was so bad that verse 2 says the people would hide in caves. And verse 6 says they were brought very, very low. Their choices, their chasing after these cultural idols of the day was a highway, and that highway promised them the destination of life for all of their culture. But where it took them was poverty and famine. And the writer gives us this detailed description to help us to see that. And we see this, poverty, right? I mean, in a grand society, if you take away your farm animals, what do you have? You have no means of making money. You have no means of providing for yourself you land in a place of poverty. And if you're in a agrarian society and there is literal, all your crops are destroyed, it is famine. Poverty and famine is where this took the Israelites. And I want you to think for a moment. So Baal and Asherah promised to them fertility of their lands. What did that highway deliver for them? What destination did that take them? It didn't take them to fertile lands or fertile wombs, or a thriving culture. It took them to a place of poverty and famine. And not only that, Baal and Ashtar did nothing to protect them from the raiding Midianites. And this is where their idolatry took them. And so this is real and historical, but I believe there's a principle here for us. It's a picture of how sin always takes us further than we want to go, that there are no off-ramps for us. We can't conveniently choose to say, hey, I'm going to go down this path and later just hop off when it gets a little risky. That's just not the way it works in the real world. And I want us to reflect on this for a moment. My guess is that uh, many of us have known people in our lives that have struggled with addiction to substances or maybe addiction to something like pornography. And the reality is, on the beginning of those highways, there's probably no sense in our mind that hey, listen, we're just going to get off this ramp before it wrecks our life and our family. It's just not the way it works. Because the allurement of sin always masks the destination of poverty and famine. Always. On the front side, it looks like the best highway you could imagine. But where it takes you time and time again is poverty and famine. Now, we don't have altars of Baal and Asherah, and we, we may think around us that, hey, listen, this is kind of fancy, weird thinking. I mean, we don't have these kinds of things in A. But I would argue that we have a plethora of cultural idols that we go to 
places that promise us life and security and comfort and meaning and satisfaction that if we chase them, if we get on that highway, they will deliver. But ultimately, where they deliver us is poverty and famine. I'm going to give you a few examples. One of them on the screen here will be the, cult, the cultural idol of materialism. And this idol tells us that, hey, listen, you will find security in life with more stuff, nicer stuff, bigger 401ks. What happens if we really buy into that and go down that highway? Where does it take us? What destination does it end in? Lack of gratitude, discontentment, comparison, superficiality, anxiety, debt, no margins for relationships because of the debt we've accrued and the work it takes to pay it off. And that's in addition to the distance that highway takes us from the real source of hope in life, God himself. So you can think about the cultural idol of approval. We don't necessarily have an altar up to this, but this is an idol that our culture promises. us. Hey, listen, you, you chase after this, this is where you're going to have to find hope and satisfaction in the approval of your peers or a particular group. But what happens when we go down that highway? When we chase it to its fullest, where, does that, where is the destination? Using people, a lack of authenticity, a loss of a sense of who we are because we're always trying to bend ourselves to the people around us. It can take us, take us to a place of bitterness when other people have it and we don't. It can take us to a place of shallowness in relationships, anxiety when we fear we're not going to get it. And that's, again, in addition to not sensing the gracious approval of our God in our life. Materialism, approval. You can think about the cultural idol of achievement. Again, that idol tells us that, hey, listen, life, satisfaction, and meaning that we hunger for will all be found in achievement in a sport, in a school, in work. We go down that highway, where is it going to take us? This one's pretty personal for me. Uh, I didn't quite realize that this was a highway I was chasing down uh, early in my marriage, but when I first got married, this, is, this chasing of this highway of meaning in my work eventually led me to a destination of great loneliness and poverty and famine. Where? Spiritually and with my wife. I got to a place several years down the road of, of this highway where there was no off-ramps, and what did I look around and find me? Alone, struggling, anxiety, burnout. That's where this idol took me. There was no off-ramps there. Achievement's destination promised satisfaction, but it delivered poverty in my marriage, and spiritual famine. This situation of the Israelites, this cycle we see in Judges, in particular, the detail we see in this passage, teaches us that we can't go about life. And if, and if you're a follower of Jesus, to say, hey, I want a little of Jesus, and I want a little of approval of everyone else around me. It just doesn't work like that. They both are jealous for your full heart. The highway of idolatry says, hey, there's no off-ramps. You come after me, you've got to have the highway. But Jesus says, no, I want your full heart because I love you. And this is the pattern we see. This is the challenge we see. So the destination of idolatry is always poverty and famine. Yet what we begin to see in our passage, if we go a little further down in verses 8 through 10, there is hope that despite the people's distrust in God, he would hear their cries and once again show up. 
And so we're going to talk about the rescue of idolatry. We've got to catch you up in the story a little bit on some verses we didn't read this morning just because of the, the length of the narrative. But in Judges 6, 7 through 24, a few things happen that begin to show that God cares, that he hears, and he's coming after his people. One is he sends a prophet to confront the people of Israel with the reality of why they were the where they were. And, and part of what's happening there is there is love in God's gracious help to help us find self-awareness. Because without them seeing that their choices brought them to this poverty and famine, there could be no real change, right? And so God's first sign of his gracious and patience care was showing up in the form of a prophet to help them see the road their, their idolatry took them. But then an angel of the Lord specifically meets with Gideon in particular. And you got to understand, Gideon wasn't kind of this bastion of life and hope in the midst of all this idolatry. He was along this path of idolatry just as everywhere else. But God showed up and met him on this tragic highway. There was no off-roads for Gideon, off-ramps for Gideon, but God showed up on the highway. That's the point here. God met him there. Gideon asked for God. God showed up in his life. And then God calls Gideon to begin to lead the people of Israel out of this idolatry and back to him that ultimately the enemy wasn't the the Midianites. The enemy was in their own camp, in their own hearts, in their own worship of something else besides God. And that would where the rescue would begin. That's where the healing would begin. And so then we pick up in Judges 6, 25 through 32. And God is going to call, and we'll particularly get to the passage in a minute what happens, but God's going to call Gideon to do something radical. He's going to say, I want you to go uh, and tear down this altar that your father has built, who's a prominent man in his city. He's built an altar to Baal and a pole to Asherah. I want you to tear down that altar. And the interesting thing is he's going to get a bull to do it. Guess what was the symbolism of Baal? A bull. Just begins to show the powerlessness of these idols that they were after. And then you're going to cut down the pole that you were worshiping, and you're going to use the wood to make an altar and a sacrifice to the true God. Loaded in that is the picture that this idolatry was powerless, that these idols promised something they could never deliver, and that God ultimately is no one is like him. But the point of that illustration that, that, that Gideon is being asked to do this is that the enemy first is not out there. It's in here. It's in our own hearts. We don't walk in in a war against the world. We walk in against a war and against our own flesh, being allured by cultural idols around us. So we're going to pick up in verse 27 to see what happens here. We see it on your screen, and we're going to work through uh, to see here. So it says, So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told them. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. It was a scary reality. It's a dangerous thing to do, and we're going to see it here. It, the, the fear of Gideon is proved as we look along in verses 28 and 30. It says, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And the men of the town said to Joash, which was Gideon's father, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. So they were ready to kill Gideon for it. I mean, you mess with what the people worship, there was going to be a harsh reaction. That's what we see here. And so you think about the place that Gideon's in. So they worship Baal and Astro, and what happens? They land in poverty and famine. But here he goes to start trying to dismantle these idols, and what happens? He's facing death. 
But here's the reality. This is part of the bigger story. We know that Gideon doesn't die. He's going to go on and conquer the Midianites. But what happens here is that God does show up in the form of prompting something in his father. Look how Joash responds in verse 31. But Joash said to all those who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? You see what he's saying? Are you going to take up for Baal? Are you going to save this God that you're after? It's like he's kind of coming to sense here. Well, his son's action of faith has begun to impact him and influence him. And then what does it say? If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. So again, this passage is hinting at the powerlessness of this idol's. Joash's wisdom is if Baal and Asherah are legit and real, why don't we let them contend for themselves? And obviously they don't. And Gideon goes on and moves on from here later in chapter 7 to conquer the Midianites. But the principle is this, and we'll see it again on your screen and it's on your, on your outline there too as well, is that God meets us and calls us to take steps of faith to dismantle the cultural idols around us, beginning in our own heart. So with me in this cultural idol achievement, God met me on that highway and he met me in my poverty and famine and he was patient with me. But the walk, the walk out of it was difficult. There were lots of changes, that steps of faith that I had to take. I had to invite people in and let them know where my choices had taken me in my marriage. I had to form some new rhythms of work and rest, right? I had to set up new boundaries all of those were steps of faith to dismantle this cultural idol achievement, to pull it down in a sense in my life. But at the core in my life, what had to happen is God had to show up and he had to begin to show me that whatever achievement promised for me, it could deliver nothing that he could deliver. That he alone was the one I was made for. And he alone could deliver me the meaning and the life and the satisfaction that I had hoped achievement would give me. That there is a series of, of steps of faith that sometimes have to be radical that we have to take to dismantle these idols, but the core of what has to happen in our heart is something much deeper. And so the reality is, is some of us, as we come in today, we're stuck on this highway. And there are certain places this, take, this path has taken us and that people maybe around you have no idea. And steps out. God promises to meet you there, but there are radical steps of faith that sometimes have to be taken. Just like what Gideon had to do if the people were had to heal, these, these statues had to come down. And it was radical. And it was dangerous. But those might have to happen in our lives. Maybe those trapped on the highway of pornography may have to get a dumb phone. I mean, it just, man, that seem, might seem crazy in our culture, but that might be the step that we have to take of faith. Maybe those trapped on the highway of approval may have to break up with social media in order to begin to separate themselves from the idol like Baal or Astra. Maybe those trapped on the highway of political power need to steer clear of the news and steer clear of the algorithms that all they do is feed that addiction. We don't have physical idols we probably have to pull down, but there are things that we maybe need to take steps of radical faith to dismantle. That the deeper work has to happen. That we've got to see in our hearts that before us is a patient, a kind, a glorious, a good Father who has met us on this highway to reveal to us that He is far better than anything these cultural idols could ever promise to deliver.
So the perilous idolatry, destination of idolatry is real. And God's rescue begins with the fight in our heart. But where do we go from here? Well, I want, to, I want us to wrestle with, personally, how we respond to something written so long ago in the time of Gideon. What does this mean for us today? And I think the first thing is we begin to think, how do we apply this? We've got to come to grips with the fact that any action we take that is ultimately going to be effective in dismantling cultural idols around us has to be rooted in this reality that God has met us first, that he has met us in this highway. And I want you to understand something here. The pattern, this isn't a new thing for Gideon and his people to get stuck in this path of idolatry. This had happened over and over and over and over again. And it began to take us them to worse and worse places. A downward spiral. But what happens? Does God stay distant? No, when they cry, he comes. He is willing to meet them on this highway. And the reality is, in this town, in this place, at the bastion of where this idolatry was happening, in Joash's house where the idols were built up, where all the people were gathering and his son was a part of it, guess where God decided to meet? Not the guy over there acting like he was religious. No, the guy that was entrenched in it, that's who God came after. Any action on Gideon's part to dismantle and come out of this and lead Israel's people started first with God meeting him on this highway with no off-ramps. He came to him. And this is our power to fight the idolatry in our hearts. And there's one particular act. We didn't look at it this week. We'll look at it next week. But I'll hint at it now that is powerful. There's a scene that happens when God shows up and he's having a conversation with him. When he shows up, he looks at Gideon and he calls him a man of valor. If you read the story, he's far from it. You got a little hint of it there in, in his fear to come and take down these cultural idols. But he is far from a man of valor. So what is this, just positive self-talk of God that he's trying to pump him up? Far from it. There was a particular way Gideon saw himself, stuck on this highway, full of insecurities and fear. What God saw in him was not his failures, but the man that God was making him into. And this is an amazing reality of how our God sees us, ultimately because of the very thing we're going to celebrate in communion. But when God looks at us as followers of Jesus, stuck on this highway, he doesn't see us, and, def- and we're not defined by all the failures that got us there. God has given us a far greater new name. It has nothing to do with where we've been, and more so what he's making us into, his sons and daughters. He sees us not as our failures, but he sees us as the ones we're becoming. And that's the power to fight this very idolatry. And so I want to specifically speak to maybe two people who have arrived today in this building. And and the first person would be the person that's allured by the cultural idols around them and think they can toy with them. And I'll be honest with you, that's all of us, right? Right? Even though I've been down the highway with no off-ramps of achievement and what it would deliver, and it took me to poverty and famine in my relationship with God and my relationship with my wife, you know I'm still allured by that same highway? Each and every week, it promises, and I'm constantly allured by going down that path of achievement. And where we sit today, Gideon pleads with us. He pleads with us to see that there are no off-ramps on this highway that there is only one destination, and it's poverty and famine. But not only that, God sent a better prophet, Jesus. And he came not just to plead with us, 
but to show and reveal us something. When he came on the scene, he had these self-disclosures about himself, things he told us about himself that revealed who he was and what he came to do. And he said he's the bread of life. He said it's the spring of living water. Think about the imagery and the opposite of poverty and famine, right? Jesus came to show us that you don't have to go down the highway to the destination of these poisonous waters that deliver nothing for you. You can come to me on the spring of living water. You don't have to go down to the destination that will lead to famine. You can come to me, the bread of life. And so as we sit here and read this story today, it's even more powerful than if we would have lived it in that day because we sit this side of the cross where Jesus has come and revealed to us even more fully what these passages teach, that he is the one we long for. And so the person allured by these cultural idols, Jesus comes today, even today before we communion, to tell us that he is the bread of life that there's no other bread to be found, that any other good, and achievement's good, approval's good, things in this life, there's nothing wrong with those things. But when we look to them as bread and water to deliver us from our poverty and famine, they will never do it. They're only meant to be gifts that taste, that point us back to him. But to the person maybe who finds themselves stuck on the highway of idolatry with no off-ramp, there are some of us in this room who have made choices and that have taken us further than they want to go. And there's an internal wreckage that's happened because of choices they've made. And they've maybe find your place where you're sitting in this poverty and famine. And some of you, it's known by those around you and they're in it with you. And some of us that it, it's, no one knows. And you're there. But you're here and it looks like everything's together, but you're really on this highway in a place of poverty and famine. And the reality is there are no off ramps for you. There's no amount of things you can do and just say, I'm going to try harder this week and get out of this highway. There's no offerings, but there is a rescuer. And the same God who showed up to Gideon, he shows up here as well. The same God who's willing to meet Gideon in the midst of this, not after he leaves it, but in the midst of it, to rescue him and his people, even though they didn't want to be in some senses. He comes here to rescue us as well. He knows your struggles. He knows your slavery to cultural idols. But he comes to bring a new name. A name that's far greater than the highway you're on. A name of son or daughter. And that's the beauty of the gospel, right? That God relates to us not based on who we were or what we do now, but who he's declared us to be. Children of the king. And so part of what I want us to see as we finish here is that ultimately the reason why we often choose this highway with no off-ramps is because the yes of that highway of the allure seems great. And just saying no has no power. We have to have a bigger yes. And that yes is the person of Jesus who's come down not just to reveal to us that he's the one we long to, long for, but the one who has rescued us and made it possible to have him. And so I would encourage you to let Psalm 86, no matter if you're the one allured or the one stuck, let Psalm 86 give you words today to call out today in prayer. And this is how we will finish, and it'll be up on the screen. Hear us, Lord, and answer us, for we are poor and needy. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding, and love 
to all who call on you. Let's pray. Father, it's a, it's a difficult thing to come and try to share about the story of Gideon when in so many ways I share all of Gideon's characteristics. And I stand as one, just allured by approval, allured by the hope of more things, by allured by the hope of more achievement, allured by finding comfort and security in those things when you're the very one who's rescued me time and time again. And you're the only one who will satisfy. And the reality is that's the story of humanity. That's the story of each one of us. And so we come to you poor and needy. We don't come to you to offer all these works in our life. We don't come to offer Bible reading or church attendance. We come to offer the fact that we are broken and needy and we are poor and we've got nothing to offer you but we know that you're good. And so would you come and meet us where we are? To all of us who are Lord, would you help us to see what it means that you are the bread of life? And to those that find themselves stuck, really stuck, really stuck in a way that they look around and all they see is walls and no way out and are living in poverty and famine and think there is no possible way out. That is the very place that the Israelites found themselves in. Would you meet them there? Would you rescue them? Would you help them see the acts of faith that they need to take in their life to dismantle these idols? Would you help them see that you really are a good God who is there to be with them and pull them out? We thank you that you're good to us. We thank you that you love us. We need you. It's your name we pray. Amen.